You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Who am I? I just answered that question for you, and so that might sound counterintuitive, but the reality is that question, who am I, is a question that all of us have asked ourselves before and likely will end up asking ourselves again. Who am I and what makes me, me? The question of identity and what the world says determines our identity is something that seems to shift over time, right? Are we primarily what we think? Are we primarily what we feel? Are we primarily what we do? Are we primarily what we remember? Are we primarily what we look like? And there's a lot of factors that go into determining which of those we think primarily informs who we are, primarily informs our identity. But in reality, it's quite likely that this morning all of those things are in play at least a little bit for us this morning. And what you'll notice about all of those things is that all of those things change over time. Our thoughts change. Our feelings change. Our roles and responsibilities change. Our memories change or or they fade. And our bodies certainly change. Why does that matter? Well, if those are our primary sources from which we derive an understanding of who we are, the primary sources from which we derive our identity, it means that our identity is not only prone to change, but is necessarily unpredictable. In fact, when one of those changes unexpectedly, it often leads to a crisis of identity, right? Tons of great stories, tons of great movies have been made about crisis in identity. Who am I if I no longer think this way? Who am I if I no longer feel this feeling? Who am am I if I no longer do this certain thing? Who am I if I can no longer remember these certain memories? Who am I if I no longer look this way? And brothers and sisters, these shifting sands are easy to sink in. And so my question this morning is, where is the solidity? Where is the solidity from which we can dependably operate? Can we know anything about our identity with certainty? I believe God's Word has an answer for us this morning. And before we jump right into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let me just kind of summarize where we are, right? Paul uh, begins this letter to the church in Corinth with a prayer of thanksgiving. And that's kind of ironic now that we're six chapters in and we know sort of all of the mess that is happening under the hood of this church in Corinth, right? And yet he opens with a prayer of thanksgiving for a messy, for a divided church. And what we come to find out is that the Corinthians were behaving more Corinthian than Christian. 
by choosing worldly power and wisdom over Jesus. But Paul writes and he teaches them and reminds them that power and wisdom actually come from Jesus. And so the Corinthians, we come to know that although they think they are wise, they are in fact not wise, they're unwise. And although they think they are mature, they are in fact immature. And the rest of this letter is Paul's attempt to help them think less like foolish, foolish Corinthians and more like wise Christians by imitating him. And Paul, in order to be clear, says this in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, I'm not writing these things. I'm not writing this letter to shame you, but to warn you as dear children, as my dear children, he says. So at the heart of all Paul's correction, he isn't aiming to shame, but to warn. In the same way that we teach children not to play in the street, Paul is teaching the Corinthians to follow Jesus. It's a fatherly concern and a fatherly hope for what they will be in the future in light of God's grace. So what's happening in 1 Corinthians 6? Well, let's just grab a couple of verses that will help us understand what's happening. Verse 1 says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? instead of the saints? Skip down to verse 5. It says this, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Well, there's at least one case, and perhaps more, where a church member with a grievance against another church member has gone to court. Instead of working through the issue within the church, they've allowed this problem to escalate beyond the church. And so now church members are going at it together in the public square in a nasty lawsuit. It's almost as if two of our members were on Judge Judy, although that's not a real court, so I guess that's not exactly the same. But it is very public and just as embarrassing as Paul says it should be. Right? Paul says that this situation is to their shame and he instructs them to handle these issues instead of externally outside of the church to handle them internally within the church. Now while we aren't given any information on the grievance, we are led to believe that this is not a serious enough matter that it should have ended up in court. So before we go any further, let me be very clear. Paul's instruction here doesn't mean that everything that happens within the church is necessarily an in-house issue. It's not what he's saying. Unfortunately, the church has regularly made the mistake of trying to handle issues in-house that require the intervention of the authorities. Issues like embezzlement, abuse, sexual misconduct, any matter with actual legal ramifications, Paul would call for the intervention of the authorities. In fact, in Romans 13, he explicitly commands it. 
And so that means, brothers and sisters, before we move on into understanding what Paul is actually calling us into here in 1 Corinthians 6, we need to know that the scope of this passage is limited. Limited to internal church disputes that don't need to be elevated outside of the church community. So Paul makes it clear that the matter at hand here is an internal family dispute and that rather than handling a family matter in-house, they've taken it to the law court of the city, which is in the center of Corinth, in the middle of the marketplace. It's the most populated area in all of the city. And so if you want to talk about airing out the dirty laundry, this is exactly what's happening here. In the most public arena you could find at this time. And so essentially they're displaying publicly to the entire city of Corinth that they do not believe or they do not understand that the gospel has the power and the resources within it to overcome grievances within the family. And Paul's response to this situation has wide-ranging effects for how we understand ourselves, how we understand our church community, and our relationships within that community. So what's Paul's response? What's Paul's response to this situation that's taking place? Well, let's go back and read verses 1 through 3. He says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul responds to this situation by telling the Corinthians that they are saints. That they're saints. Now again, in light of all of the evidence that we've had five chapters through, for Paul to still be calling them saints is wonderful good news for us this morning. But in using the word saints, he's making a point. He's saying that there are people that have been set apart. There are people that have been made Holy, distinct, different. And so their behavior should illustrate that distinction, that difference. He tells them that as saints, they will, with Jesus, judge the world and angels in the final day. And we could have a long conversation about that and it would be confusing and weird, so we're not going to. But I'll tell you the heart of what he's getting at. The heart of what Paul is getting at is that everything that's taking place in the midst of this divided body of believers in Corinth is ultimately a question of identity. All the strife that they're experiencing, all the interpersonal conflict within this church, all of the grievances that are being aired in public in front of everyone, all of those things 
are at their core a crisis of identity. The church's inability to deal with this situation arises because they've forgotten who they are. Which is why Paul's response is first to remind them who they are. You see, the legal system in Corinth was not used so much to seek justice as to establish one's status, honor, and position in society. So it's a little bit different from our court. The courts in Corinth were often used by the fortunate to tread upon the less fortunate. The court was a quick way to move up the ranks and to establish one's power over another. And so the reason that this situation is so shocking is not simply because it's a legal dispute. It's shocking because one brother in Christ is looking to get a leg up on another brother in Christ in the eyes of the world. And so the lawsuit, this lawsuit that's happening among brothers in Corinth is less about rectifying a wrong and more about shoring up someone's identity. It's more about being judged superior in view of the public. Let's lay out the case and let the public decide and then let the public congratulate me when I've been shown to be in the right, when I've been shown to be the one who is wronged, when I've been shown to be the one who is morally superior. And Paul says, this isn't saintly behavior. This isn't distinct This looks just like the rest of Corinth. And so the pursuit of a superior identity has come at the cost of loving the church family. Ultimately, the Corinthians are conducting themselves as though their God-given identity is of no importance or, even worse, of no value. They're forgetting the gospel. They're failing to be who they in fact are. Are. They're saints, but they're acting like non saints. They're righteous, but they're acting unrighteously. And the result is that their community, which is to be this present glimpse of the future community that God has always intended to have for Himself, a perfect people that praise and worship God and that in their praise and worship reveal His glory to others, now has nothing to offer. They have no means of displaying the way that the gospel both shapes and reshapes a community. Their salt is no longer salty, as Jesus would say. Ironically, in the CSB translation in verse 7, it says this. It says, therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already, get this, a moral failure for you. Paul says to have public disputes in view of a watching and unbelieving world is a moral failure for you. And here's where the irony comes in, right? The irony is that in their pursuit of moral superiority in the world's courts, that pursuit actually ends in moral failure according to their new identity in Jesus. The wisdom of the world sure is different from the wisdom of God, isn't it? 
And so the answer, brothers and sisters, this morning to our question of identity is this. When we lapse in our identity, when we have those moments of crisis, when we feel like our identity is up for grabs or up for interpretation, the answer is not to form a new identity, but rather to relearn who we already are. Because as Christians, brothers and sisters, our identity is not ours to form. It has already been formed for us and it has been given to us as a gift. What does Galatians 2.20 say? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Brothers and sisters, we no longer live. But Christ lives in us. His identity is our identity. And so in this particular situation, what Paul is calling them to do is to remember that identity. To remember the beauty of the identity of Jesus, right? What is the beauty of Jesus' identity? Well, the beauty of Jesus' identity is that even though He suffered wrong at our hands, And even though He has been defrauded by us of the honor and the glory and the praise that He is due from us, He doesn't go to human or heavenly courts to be vindicated. But instead, He goes to a cross in order to be condemned in our place. Jesus doesn't try to return the burden of injustice. He absorbs it for our sake. Jesus' forgiveness and the reconciliation that results is costly for Him. And this, brothers and sisters, is the identity that Paul now says is ours. In that identity are the tools that we need to deal with these kinds of internal conflicts within the church. Which is why Paul goes on to say in verse 9, he says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, that includes both the seriously and significantly sinful man of chapter 5 who is to be excommunicated, and it has to do with those who share petty grievances, all of them moral failure, right? He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, all of them, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen, I know there's a lot wrapped up in there and we're not, we're not jumping over it in order to avoid it. Some of it will be discussed more next week. But if you have questions, you can ask. Let's not get away from the main point, what Paul is trying to illustrate That moral failure is a moral failure is a moral failure is a moral failure. And when those moral failures are are our identity, we can be sure that we won't inherit the kingdom of God. But 
But then Paul comes in with verse 11. He's not slow to apply the band-aid. He says, and such were some of you. My favorite word in all the Bible. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is Paul saying? Such were some of you, but you were washed. That means the stain of sin in your life has been removed from you, right? You were sanctified. That means that the grip of sin on your life has been released, is being released. You were justified. What does that mean? The identity of sin has been replaced. You've been justified. We've been made new. The old is gone. The new has come. And so what are the implications of this identity in this particular situation in Corinth? What are the implications for those of us this morning who may be, even now, looking across the room and recognizing someone that we feel we have either wronged or been wronged by? The implications are fairly simple. Forgiveness is costly. When we've been wronged, we can choose to forgive or to exclude. We can exclude or we can embrace. And if we're going to embrace, we can only embrace that person if we remind ourselves of the Gospel, that those who ought to have been excluded were embraced by Jesus. Such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of our God. Jesus suffered at our hands and then He forgave. He embraced and He brought us into the family of God. Even though, as Ephesians 2 says, we were children of wrath. He made us brothers and sisters and brought us into the presence of God, His own Father. That is what forgiveness is. That is the identity from which we operate. And that is a solid identity. Listen, whether you're a believer or not in the room this morning, if you hang around the church long enough, the reality is that we will Wrong one another. Just make plans for it now. Don't be surprised when it happens. Some of you, maybe this is your first time in a church building. Well, it's not really a church building, but this is your first time among a gathering of believers in a long time. Because you've suffered wrong. I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to make it sound like it's unimportant. But I also want you to know that within your God-given, Christ-purchased, Spirit-applied identity, you have the tools to deal with that in the community of Christ. 
we will be wronged by one another. And when we are, we can reject that person and make them pay. Or we can embrace them and we can pay. And brothers and sisters, I don't think I have to do too much talking for you to understand which one is the way of Jesus. Those are the only two options that we have. We will either embrace or we will exclude. And often, exclusion can look very different. Exclusion can be public, right? It can be before the watching world, right? It can be on social media. It can be through public slander. But you know what? It can also be through quiet gossip. Through that unnecessary whisper. Through blame shifting. Or maybe, you know what, just, just a cold enough shoulder. Not too much to make them suspicious, but enough to satisfy our vengeance. And if you're wondering why these examples are so specific, it's because they're mine. And it's in these moments, brothers and sisters, that I, like you, I'm guessing, unless I'm the only unrighteous one in here, need to be reminded that I am in fact not unrighteous. That I am in fact righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. That I'm in fact a saint, that I will be given status and stature within His kingdom according to His work and not my own. And so the reality, brothers and sisters, is that embrace will cost us, but within our identity, we have the tools to pay that price. We can absorb the cost of forgiveness when we've been wronged because a wrong done against us does not touch our identity unless we don't believe the gospel. If we've been financially wronged, right? Just as an example, I'm just, I'm just throwing stuff in here, right? So this is not anywhere in 1 Corinthians 6, but let's just say it was a matter of financial grievance. Well, if we've been financially wronged, we're comforted in knowing that our net worth doesn't define us. If we've been relationally wronged, we're comforted to know that our ultimate relationship is secure. Christ endured every imaginable wrong so that we could be given every imaginable right. We have everything, right? That's what, that's what we've been told, that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. We have all that we need, right? Everything. There is no lack at present within us, no matter how much we try to find them, or no matter how much we might think they're there. And so that means that we can be the ones to absorb we can be the ones to forgive. We can be the ones to pursue reconciliation, even when it's counterintuitive, even when we are the ones who've been wronged. That's why Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Conversely, the wrongs that we commit against others in our new gospel identity become things that we 
can freely confess and sorrowfully repent for because they don't define us. Our sin is not our identity, so we can look at it for what it is. It's grievous. It sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself, to the cross where He was slain in order to make payment for that wrong. It's grievous. Make no mistake. I'm not trying to minimize that reality. But that's the glory of the Gospel. The glory of the the Gospel is what happens in that moment when we acknowledge those two things, that our identity is secure and that it was costly for Jesus to purchase it. It allows us within the Christian community to take sin seriously, but to handle it graciously. In our new gospel identity, in our new identity toolkit, we can handle sin seriously and deal with it graciously. What freedom there is to be found in that reality. And so that means, brothers and sisters, we don't have to overlook when wrong is done. We don't. Paul is not calling them to turn a blind eye so that the church doesn't look bad. Right? Although he does not want the church to look bad. That's why he's calling them to live holy, calling them to live set apart, right? He wants the gospel to go forth through them for for their community in their life together to proclaim God's glory. Like he wants all of those things, but he's, he's not saying that that comes by suppressing sin, but rather by giving it over to the Lord Jesus. And so we don't have to overlook when wrong is done, but we also don't have to crush each other for the wrong we've done. The church is a different kind of court, brothers and sisters. Justice is served when grace is extended. When repentant perpetrators are forgiven and the radically broken are restored to fellowship. This can only happen when we confront ourselves with the identity that we have in Christ. Even the most drastic identity crisis cannot cause us to forget who we are. We must remember our true identity and then strive to live in line with it by way of the resources that are provided in the gospel. And so I'm just going to leave us with some questions. Have we been cold to our brothers and sisters? Are there people in our hearts that we don't want to forgive? Is there a lingering conflict that we're unwilling to address within the church? Brothers and sisters, if there is, that means there's gospel amnesia. And so like Paul, the call for all of us, myself included this morning, is to remember. It's to remember. If the default position for the Christian is that of forgiveness rather than rejection, we need to remember the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. And so brothers and sisters, I'll ask you again. 
Is there somebody with whom we have a grievance, a dispute, or an issue? Is there somebody who needs our forgiveness? If it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us, then forgiveness isn't passively granted, but it's actually actively pursued. Right? Jesus didn't wait for you to feel bad. The Bible tells us completely the opposite, right? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus comes close. Jesus draws near. Jesus comes into the conflict. Jesus steps into the brokenness. Jesus steps into the grievance. Jesus absorbs it. And he gives glory to the Father in doing so. Should we not also be a similar people? And my hope and my prayer is similar to that of Paul's, that we would be, in fact, a united church, and that as we are united, we'll see throughout the remainder of 1 Corinthians, God will glorify himself, not only in us, but through us to a watching world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together. Grateful to be gathered together in light of your grace. And I thank you, Lord, that your grace not only can do a work in us, but is even now doing a work in us. Because your word promises us that the work you begin, you complete. And so, Father, we might not look a whole lot like Jesus right now, but Lord, day by day, moment by moment, instance by instance, you are calling us into greater faithfulness and you are, by the power of your Spirit, making us more like Jesus. So Lord, I pray that we would, in fact, begin to look that way. I pray, Father, that Jesus would uh, strengthen us by your Spirit, encourage us into the messy and the difficult and the brokenness that surrounds us and that we wouldn't be a church, Father, that overlooks sin but deals with sin graciously. striving, as your word says, to maintain the unity and the bond of peace that by your spirit we've been provided. And Lord, as we come to the table this morning, I pray, Father, that we would remember the great cost at which fellowship and forgiveness have been extended to us. Lord, there was a body that was broken and blood that was shed. And not just any body, but Lord, the body of your very own Son, broken for us, so that we might come and enjoy a meal at your table with no relational strain, nothing but peace. We long for and we look forward to that day in this sacrament. Would you nourish us by your Spirit? Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.